Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. After Luke gives some introductory comments uh, regarding uh, his gospel, he introduces Zacharias and Elizabeth in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, who his wife was also of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, I want to call your attention to to three things that we learn about Zacharias and Elizabeth from verse 5. First, we learn that Zacharias was a priest, which means he was a Levite, uh, a descendant of Aaron. Second, we learn that Zacharias was married to Elizabeth. And third, we learn that Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. In other words, her father was a priest. Now, these details tell us something about the character of Zacharias and Elizabeth. According to Levitical law, priests could not just marry whoever they wanted to marry. Leviticus 21.7 says, speaking of priests, they shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. And then two verses later in uh, Leviticus 21 verse 9, we read something of God's stipulations for the daughter of a priest. The daughter of any priest If she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. Now, the fact that Zacharias was a priest and married Elizabeth, who was the daughter of a priest, tells us something about the character of these two people when they were young. Uh, The implication is that both of them had been living an honorable life from their youth. And verse 6 of our sermon text confirms this. At least it seems to confirm this. It says, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, of course, when it says they were righteous and they were blameless, it doesn't mean they never sinned. These are general terms that are being used to describe their general walk with God, their commitment to the Lord. And yes, they were righteous people, sinful people, but people who were in the Lord and righteous in the Lord, and that their motivation and the intents of their heart were, were righteous and blameless, according to verse 6. Yet, we also need to understand the, the chronological implications that we learn from verse 5 and verse 6. When verse 6 says that they were both righteous, the verb here is in the imperfect tense. And this means that Zacharias and Elizabeth had begun walking in all the commandments of the Lord at some time in the past. That's what the imperfect means. It began sometime in the past and then continues uninterrupted into the present time. But verse six does not tell us how far in the past uh, this couple began walking in the commandments and ordinances of, of the Lord. From both a theological and grammatical perspective, going only off what is said in verse six, it's possible that Zacharias and Elizabeth had begun walking in the commandments of the Lord five years before the events of this, of our sermon text. That's possible, grammatically and theologically. Maybe it was a decade before. 
Maybe it was two decades before, if we're only looking at verse six. And we learn from verse seven that Zacharias and Elizabeth were well advanced in their years, it says, which means they were probably in their 60s when the events of our sermon text took place. So if we are only going off of what we read in verse six, maybe this couple started walking in the commandments of the Lord when they were in their 40s or 50s. That's entirely possible grammatically and theologically. And the Bible gives plenty of examples of people who did not walk in the commandments of the Lord when they were young, but began walking in the commandments of the the Lord later in life, and the Bible describes them as righteous and honorable people. Uh, Mary Magdalene is is a great example. Everything we read about her, what she does in the gospels is righteous and honorable. She's a woman of integrity. She's a follower of Jesus. She walks faithfully with her Lord. Every aspect of her life displays loyalty and devotion to her Savior. Yet Luke 8 verse 2 says that Jesus had previously driven seven demons from Mary Magdalene. In other words, there was a time when Mary was not walking in the commandments of the Lord. She was probably in her 30s or 40s when she met Jesus, when she was transformed by his grace, and she began walking in the commandments of the Lord. And the point I'm making here is not that there's something deficient about Mary Magdalene, but uh, that her ability to serve the Lord is somehow compromised because of her sinful past. Quite the opposite, exactly the opposite. When Mary received the justifying grace of God, she became a new creation. Her old things had passed away, and behold, all things had become new for Mary. She was every bit as much a child of God as somebody who had been saved much, much earlier in their Christian walk. And this illustrates the point that I'm I'm actually making, which is even somebody with an explicitly sinful past can be described as a person who is righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of of the Lord. Even a person with a sinful past having come to Christ Jesus, can be described as one who is righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. So when Zacharias and Elizabeth are described this way in verse six, we don't know how long they had been walking in the commandments of the Lord. But when we factor in the details we read in verse five, we have reason to believe this couple had been walking in the commandments of the Lord ever since their youth. Because Zacharias was a priest, his character and moral life have been under greater scrutiny than other people ever since he was a young man. And because Elizabeth was the daughter of a priest, her character and moral life was under greater scrutiny than other women because other women who were not the daughter of a priest. And because Zacharias married Elizabeth, we can conclude that both of them met the criteria that we read earlier from Leviticus 21. Now, why is this important to the narrative of our sermon text? Why is Luke establishing these details in verses five and six? Because of what he introduces in verse seven. In verse seven, Luke explains that Elizabeth was barren. You see, back in those days, there was a strong stigma 
attached to being barren. Because the scriptures speak of children being a reward from the Lord, it was thought that a childless couple must have done something to provoke the Lord to withhold this reward from them. And because the scriptures speak of barrenness as God's judgment, uh, they thought, the people back then, they thought that infertility was a sign of God's punishment upon a couple. More specifically, they thought that it was a sign of God's punishment upon the wife. If she could not bear children for her husband, then she must have done something sinful to bring God's judgment upon her. That is what people thought about barrenness back in those days. So before Luke tells his readers that Elizabeth was barren, he makes an emphatic declaration that she and her husband are both righteous people who have been walking blamelessly in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord from their very youth. And this is because Luke doesn't want his readers to think that Elizabeth was childless due to the Lord's displeasure with her. He doesn't want his readers to think that, that her barrenness was a punishment for her sins. No, her barrenness is a consequence of sin, but not her own sin. It's the sin of Adam. And that's an important distinction to make. Zacharias and Elizabeth were dealing with infertility because they live in a broken world that has been subjected to futility. They were childless because creation is in the bondage of corruption. And when creation is in the bondage of corruption, things don't always work the way that they're supposed to. But there's no moral implication to that for Elizabeth. One of the advantages of being raised by Christian parents and in a home where the commandments and ordinance of the Lord are taught and upheld is that the children are able to begin their adult lives without a lot of baggage. And what I mean by baggage uh, are the problems that people create for themselves by disobeying God's commandments. For example, I recently read a study from the Institute of Family Studies. Uh, the data from the study was collected in 2013, so things may have changed a little bit in the last 10 years. But in 2013, first-time brides had an average of five sexual partners before they married. And equally concerning, only 5% of first-time brides were virgins when they married. Now this study goes on to demonstrate the correlation between divorce and the number of premarital sex partners a person has. Um, with charts and lots of data, the study shows that this, the strongest and most stable marriages are statistically those ones where there had been no premarital sex. And the study also shows that the weakest and most unstable marriages are the ones where there had been a lot of premarital sex. But as Christians, we don't need the study to make that correlation for us, right? We already know this because the Bible tells us how we are to behave before marriage and after marriage. And God's law prohibits premarital sex, which the Bible calls fornication. And the scriptures plainly tell us that if you disobey God's law, as a general principle, whether that's a sin of fornication or something else, if you disobey God's law, then you're going to experience the negative consequences of your sin, or what I'm referring to as baggage. The sin of fornication creates a lot of baggage. 
the fornicator doesn't realize that at the time he or she is committing the sin, but they're creating baggage that's going to cause some serious problems in their future relationships, especially if they ever get married. That baggage will strain their marriage relationships in ways that they never understood prior to having become married. But it doesn't have to be this way. God tells us that if we walk in his commandments and ordinances, then we will enjoy his blessings upon our lives. Which is why I say one of the advantages of being raised by Christian parents in a home where the commandments and ordinances of the Lord are taught and upheld is that children uh, from those homes are able to begin their adult lives without a lot of baggage. And so children, the children here in our congregation, uh, I want to encourage you to, to thank the Lord for the Christian parents that you have. Uh, I want to encourage you to be thankful to God that he has placed you in a home where the commandments and ordinances of the Lord are not only taught, but they're upheld. In fact, they're enforced because this is an extraordinary gift to you. It's an extraordinary gift. You've been given a family where you are loved, where you are nurtured, where you are trained in ways of righteousness, and you have the increasingly rare opportunity to transition into adulthood without all the baggage that so many other people your age are are already carrying. And if it pleases the Lord to give you a spouse, then you have the opportunity to enter into that covenant marriage without the baggage that's created by so many of those sins that present challenges and strains to the marriage relationship. So be encouraged, children. Be encouraged to know that when you walk in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, you have every reason to believe that you are also going to be walking now and in the future in the blessings of God. When you walk in his ways, you walk in his blessings. But let's be realistic about the problems and challenges that you will face. You you can avoid the problems and challenges that come from disobeying God's law, uh, those self-inflicted problems, but you cannot avoid the problems and challenges that come from living in a broken world which is in bondage to corruption. Sometimes young people, young Christians, who have been careful to, to walk in accordance with the commandments and ordinances of the Lord will enter into adulthood or into, enter into marriage with the assumption that they won't have to contend with any significant problems. These young Christians rightly understand that obedience to God generates blessings while at the same time avoiding self-inflicted hardships Right? This is a, a true righteous principle. So, so these young Christians rightly understand this, but, but they overlook or, or don't understand that obedience only avoids a certain category of hardship, namely what I've already des- described as self-inflicted hardships. It avoids the problems and challenges that are created um, by one's own personal sin that generates baggage. But there's another category of hardship in this world. 
to one degree or another, everybody, everybody suffers under the hardship created by the sin of Adam. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an atheist, whether you're young or old, whether you've been walking in the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, or you've been walking according to your own wisdom, everybody suffers under the consequences of Adam's sin. And that's what was happening to Zacharias and Elizabeth. From what we can tell, they were raised by godly parents. Their parents loved them. Their parents cared for them. Their parents taught them to walk in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. And Zacharias and Elizabeth did as they were taught. They loved the Lord. They served the Lord. They were obedient to the Lord. And consequently, they enjoyed the blessings of entering marriage without bringing a lot of baggage created by their own personal sins. Nevertheless, Zacharias and Elizabeth struggled with infertility. Back when they were young and newly married, they hoped that uh, this would only be a short-term struggle. Zacharias, as a godly husband, began leading his wife and praying to the Lord that, uh, that they would be blessed with a child. But as the years went on, God did not answer that prayer. Eventually, Elizabeth reached the age when women stopped bearing children. And by this point, they had probably resigned themselves to the fact that they would never have children. But then one day, elderly Zacharias went into the temple to burn the holy incense. And our sermon text tells us that an angel appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Zacharias was frightened, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, there's a lot of things we could we could note about this, but I want to call your attention to two things about this angelic visit. First, we learn from verse 19 that the angel is Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel was a messenger from God. In fact, that's what the word angel literally means in Greek. It means messenger. Uh, Gabriel was one of the chief messengers of God. He says in verse 19 that he stands in the presence of God and that God had sent him to Zacharias to bring these glad tidings. So when Gabriel appeared to Zacharias in the temple, that was a divine appointment. God was meeting with Zacharias through his messenger angel to deliver glad tidings to Zacharias. Second, notice where God chose to have this encounter with Zacharias. It was in the context of worship. It was in the context of worship. The Lord's messenger came to Zacharias while he was engaged in worship. I think a lot of Christians today could benefit from a better understanding of what worship is. It's not just going through the rituals of sitting, standing, singing, confessing, praying, reading, listening, praising, eating, and drinking. We need to ask ourselves, why do we do these things? To what end do we do these things? What is happening when we do these things? And a variety of answers can be given to these questions. Uh, One that you've frequently heard me say is that we come together for worship to stir up love and good works in one another. 
And that's a good answer because it's a biblical answer. It's what it says in Hebrews 10.24. Another answer is that we come together for worship to offer up praise and thanksgiving to God. That as well is a good answer because it's a biblical answer. It's what Psalm 117 says. And if you remember, uh, Psalm 117 was used this morning as our call, of wor- call to worship. And that's quite appropriate as a call to worship. Another answer is that we worship to teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We recently had this discussion as well. And this is, a, this is an appropriate, good biblical answer because it's what it says in Colossians 3.16 as well as Ephesians 5.19. There are, there are many other good answers that explain why we come together for worship. But when we, when we group all those answers together into a single composite description of worship, we are confronted with the reality that God is the creator and we are his creatures. God is the creator and we are his creatures, which means we are dependent upon God. We must continually receive life and salvation from our triune God. The essence of worship, therefore, is to receive God's gracious gifts while offering our praise for who he is. The essence of worship is to receive God's gracious gifts while offering our praise for who he is. And I think most Christians intuitively understand the part where we offer our praise to God for who he is. But I I also think that many Christians have forgotten or perhaps never really understood to begin with that worship is as much about receiving from God as it is giving to God. We worship so that we can receive God's grace. As dependent creatures, we come together for worship because we understand that this is where God regularly bestows his gracious gifts upon his children. And so it shouldn't surprise us to see God giving Zacharias the good gift of answered prayer as Zacharias is involved in worship. Nor should it surprise us to see God giving good gifts to any of his children who are involved in worship. In other words, you should come to worship expecting to receive good gifts from God. You should expect your doubts to be dispelled. You should expect your anxieties to be reduced. You should expect your fears to be calmed. You should expect your faith to be increased. You should expect your hope to be secured. You should expect your love to be expanded. You should expect your assurance to grow. You should expect your joy to be multiplied. And you should expect your prayers to be heard. I don't blame Zacharias one bit for being frightened when Gabriel suddenly appeared to him. That doesn't ordinarily happen when God's people are assembled together for worship. But for Zacharias to receive the assurance that his prayer has been heard is not an unusual part of worship. What's unusual in Zacharias' case is the mode by which God declared his assurance to Zacharias. But what's not unusual is that God declares assurance to his people within the context of worship. So Gabriel appeared to Zacharias and announces that Elizabeth will soon give birth to a son. But Gabriel announced much more than just this. 
Um, he also announced the name of the child in verse 13, and you shall call his name John. And then in verse 14, Gabriel announces the response to the child, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Then in verse 15, Gabriel announces the calling of the child, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And then in verses 16 and 17, Gabriel announces the ministry of the child. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, the Lord their God. He will also go before the Lord their God in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Notice the grand scope of 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 these announcements. Not only will Zacharias and Elizabeth rejoice at the birth of John the Baptist, but so will many, many it says. And who those many are becomes more clear as the announcement continues. Gabriel proceeds to say that John is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Notice uh, that John is not gonna be great according to a human scale of measurement. He's going to be great according to the Lord's scale of measurement. And this infers that John is going to be used by God for something important, some important office or ministry that the Lord has for John. And this inference is further reinforced as Gabriel explains that John shall drink neither wine nor strong, strong drink. Uh, Zacharias would have immediately connected this with the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. Um, he would have recalled how Nazarites, such as Samson, were set apart by God for special ministries. And when Gabriel said that John will be filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb, Zacharias would have made the connection to the prophet Jeremiah. Right? He would have remembered that when the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, God said, before I formed you in a womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And when Gabriel said that John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, Zacharias would have most certainly understood that Gabriel uh, was saying that John is going to be the long-anticipated prophet that Malachi had written about. Now, don't forget, Zacharias was a priest. He was a learned man. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. So the details and the implications of Gabriel's announcement would not have been lost on him. And also, don't overlook the fact that at this particular time in redemptive history, God had not given any special revelation to his people for four centuries. The last prophet that God had sent to Israel was Malachi, and that was 400 years before the events of our sermon text. So Israel had been in a sort of dark ages for 400 years. Malachi had prophesied that the day will come when God will send a prophet like Elijah, so the Jews um, had the expectation that God is going to continue to speak to them He's going, God is going to continue to speak to them through, through prophets, but they didn't know when the prophet would arrive. 
And so as Gabriel is describing the calling and ministry of the baby Elizabeth will soon give birth to, he's telling Zacharias things that God's people had been waiting 400 years to hear. He's telling Zacharias that the baby boy is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. That the seed of the woman prophesied all the way back in the Garden of Eden is about to be made manifest to Israel and John, this baby, is the prophet who will proclaim the Messiah to the world. Once again, let me remind you that Zacharias was a priest. He knew what the scriptures say. So he didn't need Gabriel to explain the meaning of these things. Yet, notice how he responds to Gabriel. He responds with skepticism and unbelief. Not unbelief that God is breaking 400 years of silence. Not unbelief that God is raising up a prophet and forerunner for the Messiah. Not unbelief that the Messiah is about to be revealed to the world but unbelief that Elizabeth is able to conceive and give birth to a baby. Look at verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. It's peculiar, the things that we have trouble believing from God. We believe that he's the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. We believe that he upholds all things by the word of his power. We believe that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. We believe that he has numbered the hairs on our head. But when we're told to believe that God is using a difficult situation for our good, we sometimes respond with a skepticism like Zacharias. We say, I don't understand how God can do that. Or we believe that God never abandons or forsakens his people, yet there are moments in which we question whether God has turned his back on us. We believe that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and that, that he's the source of our daily bread. And yet there are times when we look at our bank balance and it causes us to doubt God's faithful provision to us. We believe that God has reconciled all things to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. But when we enter into a conflict with another Christian, we begin doubting that the directions God has given us for mending strained relationships will do any good. He reconciled us to him and us with each other, yet we doubt he can continue to do that when we, when we mess up the relationships amongst us. A, a, and, and closer to the events of our sermon text, we sometimes pray to God asking him for his blessings and seeking his grace, but we don't really believe that he is going to answer our prayers. We don't really believe that he's gonna answer the prayers that we offer up to him. That's what Zacharias is doing in our sermon text. He had prayed for many years that Elizabeth would bear a child. And now the angel Gabriel is standing before him, telling him that God has heard his prayer and that Elizabeth is going to bear a son. And Zacharias responds with skepticism. He says, how can I know that the things that you're saying are true? After all, look how old we are. 
Can the mighty creator of heaven and earth really make two people like us have a baby? Gabriel responds, okay, I'll give you a sign. You will be mute and not able to speak until the days these things take place. But because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Notice Gabriel's uh, conviction. These words are gonna be fulfilled in their own time, Zacharias, whether you believe them or not. They will be fulfilled in their own time. But then notice how Zacharias responds. Uh, He had just been struck mute. He had just been rebuked by an angel. But he continues to perform his priestly duties. Uh, After the incense was lit, it was customary for the priest to come out of the temple and pronounce a blessing upon the worshipers. Zacharias came out of the temple, but he couldn't pronounce a blessing because he couldn't speak. So he gestured to the people. We're not sure what that gesturing was. Maybe he was trying to gesture a blessing. More probable, he was trying to explain to them why he can't speak. And I think he gestured pretty well because it says that the people perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. But now look at verse 23. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Brothers and sisters, Zacharias did not stop worshiping God. Even though he was mute, even though he had been rebuked by the angel Gabriel for his disbelief, Zacharias remained in Jerusalem and he continued worshiping the Lord until the days of his service were completed. Let me remind you why we worship, brothers and sisters. We enter into the presence of our triune God because we are his dependent creatures. We worship to receive our Lord's gracious gifts while we offer him our praise. Zacharias had stumbled where, uh, when he had, uh, when Zacharias had stumbled when he was told that his prayers had been heard. He stumbled and his stumbling was an unambiguous reminder that he was a dependent creature on God. But what better response can a dependent creature have than to worship God? What better response can a dependent creature have than to position himself in the place where God regularly pours forth his grace and his mercy? We should worship God at all times, brothers and sisters, but especially during times when we stumble, especially during times when we fall, especially during times when we lack faith and when we're doubting the truth of God. It's crucial that we appear before our Lord in worship during these troubling times, brothers and sisters, because worship is where he builds us up. Worship is where he equips us for our calling. Worship is where his sanctifying grace flows freely to all who come uh, into his presence by faith. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, because worship is where dependent creatures enter, uh, encounter the Lord in magnificent ways. When Zacharias had completed his worship, uh, verse 24 says that he went home to Elizabeth and she conceived. And this is the beginning of the fulfillment 
uh, of the announcement that Gabriel made to Zacharias. He told Zacharias that Elizabeth would conceive, and she did. And he told Zacharias that he and Elizabeth would rejoice in their son, and they were already rejoicing in their son. Elizabeth says in verse 25, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. That's rejoicing. And by way of reminder, her reproach was not that she had been barren for so many years. That wasn't her fault. That was the result of the fall. There's no reproach in being barren. Her reproach was in the misperception of the people. And Elizabeth knew this. That's why she says at the end of verse 25 that God has taken away her reproach among the people. The reproach was never among God. The reproach was always among the people. The people had privately concluded that God was punishing Elizabeth for for some secret sin, some secret sin she never really actually committed. But now the conspiracy theory had been proven false. And Elizabeth is giving God glory and praise for his mercy upon her. She's rejoicing in his answer to her prayers. And what we're seeing in our sermon text is that when God answers his people's prayers, he often answers them in ways that far exceed the actual prayer requests. What Zacharias and Elizabeth prayed for was a child that they could rejoice in. What God gave them was a child that they could rejoice in and many other people would rejoice in as well. He gave them a son who would be the forerunner to the Messiah a son who would be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, a son who would break 400 years of silence by boldly and faithfully declaring the word of the Lord to dependent creatures of God. And what we're seeing in our sermon text, therefore, is an example or an expression of what Paul writes in Ephesians 3.20, which tells us that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. This is one of the verses that we've been focusing on as we're going through the book we're reading, right? God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Do you believe this, brothers and sisters? Do you believe what Paul is writing in Ephesians 3.20? You have to believe it. You have to believe it because it's God's inerrant word. In much the same way that Zacharias had to believe what Gabriel said to him. He needed a little convincing, but he did believe. We have to believe what's written in Ephesians 3.20 because it's God's inerrant word. It's his infallible truth. It's God's gracious promise given to his dependent creatures who love him and worship him. So won't you please join your hearts with mine as we ask the Lord to strengthen our faith and equip us to not only believe the words that he's given to us, but to walk in them as we pursue the calling he's placed upon us. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. 
all material here within, unless otherwise noted. Copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.